0: I know we keep talking about ACLs because it's the most you know, prolifically researched injury. Yeah. The testing barrier that we're, we're most typically use, yeah. uh, we're finding that it's not as reliable as we thought, right?
1: If you or someone you know has ever dealt with a knee issue, this is the podcast for you. If you didn't already know this, Knee pain negatively affects 25% of the adult population. And while that number might seem high, the prevalence of knee pain has actually increased 65% over the past 20 years, according to a 2018 paper by Dr. Christopher Bunt. So when I asked my guy Adam Lewakno to come back on the show and he said he wanted to talk about knees, I was all ears. Adam is the director of rehab for the Phoenix Suns in the NBA. And before his time there, he spent another 8-10 to years working in professional soccer. So as someone that has seen more than his fair share of knee issues over the years, in this episode, Adam and I are going to take a deep dive into everything knee pain. We start by talking about his assessment process, and how he evaluates his athletes at both the joint and system level. From there, we talk about rehabilitation, the KPIs he uses to determine progress, and how he gauges if an athlete is back to 100% function. We talk a bit about tendinopathy, as that is something we're both seeing a lot more of these days. And last but not least, we talk about how we can better protect our young athletes from injury. Now, if you're a regular to the show, welcome back. As always, love and appreciate you. And if you're new here, welcome. I'm Mike Robertson, and this is the Physical Preparation Podcast. In this show, we take deep dives into the art and science of coaching, cueing, program design, business, and personal development. Basically, anything to help you become a better trainer, coach, or rehab professional. Now, I'm no stranger to knee pain myself. Back in 2005, I suffered a meniscus injury when skiing. And while the injury itself sucked and really put a a tamper on my powerlifting career at that point in time, the knowledge I gained from that was absolutely astounding. I wanted to know everything I possibly could about knees, and over the years, as I learned more, as I wrote more, as I consulted more, it actually led me to create my Bulletproof Knees Manual. So whether you train high-level athletes, young kids, or simply general population clients who are suffering from knee pain, there's a ton of value in this episode, and I know you're going to love it now before we dive into the weeds there before we get into this full podcast i want to give you a very brief recap of what's new in my neck of the woods and let's kind of start with this entire vegas trip man i've been to vegas probably five or six times now and i can tell you that place is absolutely wild like anybody that's trying to keep things relatively normal you know eat normal foods get a regular bedtime workout it is a challenge there man that place is crazy so You know, I get in late Friday night, go to bed. Saturday morning, I'm up early because of the time change. Literally, it's like 7 a.m. There's people that are coming in from the clubs and the bars having breakfast with me. They haven't been to bed. Um, It's like a 20-minute walk to try and get to the, the hotel gym because they've got it buried back in the corner. But I'll be honest, the trip was absolutely worth it. It was amazing getting to watch my guys I always talk about one of the most difficult things being a coach or a physical preparation coach in my environment is I get to spend weeks, months with these guys in the offseason, but it's really rare that I get to watch them go out and compete. Sometimes, you know, if they're in town, if they play for a different team, I can go watch them, Um, but it's really, really hard to watch them play and watch kind of the fruits of our labor. So it was great to go out there. I got to watch all the guys play. Uh, A couple guys like Sean McDermott had an absolutely amazing game. I think he had 18 points in 18 minutes. Micah had a good game. Uh, Unfortunately, Dakota didn't get quite as many minutes as we would have liked, but he played a lot in the previous summer league in Utah, so it was great. I got to watch all those guys. I saw even some guys that I'd worked in previous summers that were still kind of grinding it out. They were in the summer leagues. Tyson Etienne. um, Oh my gosh, I can't think of the other guy's name. It's escaping me right now, but... It was just great to catch up Jarrell Brantley. There we go, Jarrell Brantley. It's great to watch these guys, watch them go out and perform. So it was great to, to, to watch, but it was also great to catch up with some of my fellow coaches because, man, these NBA guys, they work incredibly hard. Uh, I mean, if you follow their lives, their careers, they're in-season, you know, when they're not in-season, they're in the gym in the off-season, they got to go out to Vegas for a week and a half, two weeks. Uh, And that's if they just do the Vegas Summer League. Some of these guys or teams do multiple Summer Leagues. So their staff might be with them two and a half, three weeks straight. So it's great catching up with all those amazing people, those amazing staffs. You know, I got to catch up with my guy E from the Pacers. I got to see, you know, the Memphis staff who I'm very close with. I got to catch up with Brady Howe from Phoenix Suns. Met a ton of new guys. Terry McClellan from the Atlanta Hawks. Adam Virgil from the LA Clippers. Again, it's just it's such a small world. The longer you're in this space, and it's great to meet all of these curious, hardworking, and really dedicated coaches. So that part was really, really fun for me. We got to have a, a little event Sunday night at Top Golf. So you know, enjoyed a, a couple adult beverages, but obviously within moderation because man, getting up the next day and getting back to Indiana, I did not <laughs> did not want to take that flight uh, in, in in a hungover state. So. Couple drinks, got to enjoy my friends, catch up with them, and then hop back on the plane and came back. But I think the best part was just, you know, being around the game, being around the guys. I mean, we were in a gym for like eight hours each day just watching wall to wall basketball. So absolutely loved it uh, and would definitely go back. You know, I don't think it's something I'll do forever, uh, but maybe for another year or two to continue to network and meet new people and just go out there and, and support. guys that i work with that was really fun so that's that last but not least uh, i know i talked about this last year kind of got diverted and started working on other projects but also got uh, a little superset webinar coming out here on robertson training systems very soon Uh, if you are curious about using supersets or you want to have a better idea as to how i use supersets in your programming, be on the lookout for that. I'll, I'll be making sure to promote it uh, wherever possible, you know, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all those places. i will probably get it on my website somewhere. But yes, if you want to learn more about how to use supersets, how to get more out of supersets, I think this webinar will be very, very enlightening. So, all right, man, that does it for this week. We're going to take a quick break and then we're going to jump into this awesome episode with Adam Luwakino. Today's episode of the Physical Preparation Podcast is brought to you by ExerFly. If you're unfamiliar with flywheel training, it's a method of strength training where your athletes generate resistance by using the inertia of a flywheel instead of traditional gravity-based resistance training. By accelerating and then decelerating a disc, your athletes generate resistance at all phases of the movement. This allows for high force training as well as eccentric overloading without the need for crazy heavy weights. I first got interested in flywheel training because I wanted my athletes to be better prepared for sport. Standard free weight training is great for the early preparatory phases, but I wanted something that could improve the rate of force development in both the concentric and eccentric phases of the lift. Most importantly, I wanted to make sure my athletes were prepared for those eccentric forces that they'll encounter in sports. And with their motorized technology, the ExerFly allows you to increase the eccentric phase of the lift from anywhere from 1 up to 80%. The biggest objection I had early on was learning a new piece of tech or equipment. After all, sometimes these things sound great, but really aren't all that functional or they take forever to figure out. But luckily, if you take the time to watch a few short videos and experiment a little bit, you'll be using the ExerFly like a pro in no time. Setup is quick and easy and my athletes are absolutely loving it. Last but not least, there are tons of different exercises and variations you can use as well. Whether we're talking squats, hinges, presses, split squats, if you can think of it, chances are you can figure out a way to do it with the Exerfly. The really cool thing is Exerfly is used by numerous teams in the NFL, NBA, over 50% of the English Premier League and numerous Olympic developmental programs as well. Now as a small business owner, I normally think, hey, this is way outside of my budget, I can't afford it, because we all know in a small business, every penny counts. But Exerfly has you covered there as well. They offer 36-month interest-free financing so you can get started ASAP with your training and pay as you go. And when you factor in a 30-day money-back guarantee, two-year warranty, and free shipping, I really believe this is a solid investment. Look, the bottom line is this, If I don't really love something, I'm not going to promote it on my show. I love my ExerFly, the results I'm getting with it, and I think you will as well. To learn more, head over to ExerFly.com so you can start building some savage athletic beasts in your gym. Again, that's ExerFly.com. Adam, man, thanks so much for coming back on the show here today. Super, super excited to have you back on. Start by just telling us a little bit about yourself.
0: Oh, it's a blast to be back here, Mike. I know we've done this before and it's been some time since, but I'm just excited to catch up and, and talk yes. shop with you. Um, what, by myself, is that what you asked?
1: Yes. Tell me. Uh,
0: about okay. you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Adam Loyacano, Uh that is Loyacono, uh, by job title and position right now, I'm Director of Rehabilitation for the Phoenix Suns, um, by formal education, uh, doctor of physical therapy, and strength and conditioning coach. I uh, just finished my fifth season in the NBA. Uh, prior to the NBA, I worked in soccer, both professional men's and women's, more on the sports science and performance side. And prior to that, worked um, as, an, as a college soccer coach uh, in the Division III uh, level of uh, college soccer.
1: That's awesome, man. So now here's the real question. It has, it's been at least a couple of years since you've been on. Like, dude, what's new? What's been going on in your world, man?
0: Oh, it's. I think it's been. Two, I think the last time we talked was uh, right after the bubble, which that sounds right. That, yeah, I think it was right after the bubble. So uh, since then, I mean, it was a very quick turnaround after the bubble. Um, just just tell, talking to you about this in the, before the show, uh, had a very short off season, had some rehab cases during that time span. So really, since the bubble, haven't had much time off. It's been it's been a long road. I mean, we brought the NBA season back to a normal calendar year, so. Um. Yeah. And then luckily last year had a very successful season, went to the finals, unfortunately, you know, lost the bucks. And then this year had a great season again, um, but unfortunately didn't get quite as far. So uh, ironically not having the outcome we wanted with the season, but also personally been able to finally get a little bit of downtime um, from professional sports.
1: Yeah. That's nice, man. Okay. So, a little insight for people that want to know how this works. A lot of times people ask, well, how do you come up with show topics or how do you know what to talk about? And frankly, a lot of times I put it on the guest, at least initially, and I say, hey, man, like, what do you want to talk about? And so when you came back and you were like, hey, I've had some knee stuff, I'm thinking a lot about knees, I was like, yes, let's do this, because I've had the same. So for starters, like very entry level or very like 30,000 foot view, what are your overarching thoughts or your philosophies when it comes to knee health?
0: It's a great question. Like you said, it's been on my mind quite a bit, having several knee injuries the last few years. And I think from a medical model, I think you have to give an appreciation to the clinical assessment, right? From a physical therapist, an athletic training an orthopedic doc, right? You have to take value in what those clinical findings are because some of those things, albeit small at that, may influence or give you insight to how their movement competencies are. So I think at a a clinical medical model, there needs to be an appreciation for the performance coach, but most performance coaches aren't doing that assessment. So as a performance-minded individual, where my mind goes is, like, knee health is, like, a product of what's going on above and below, right? There's only... The main the main degrees of freedom range of motion at our knee or flexion and extension. Yes, there's some internal rotation, external rotation, some an anterior posterior translation. But again, that they're, they're albeit small, right? So what often happens at the knee, including injuries or just overall health, is a product of let's just call it the foot ankle complex and then also the lumbo pelvic complex. Yeah. So I think understanding the integration of those three parts gives a pretty good insight to how the knee is performing and also just general lower extremity health.
1: Yeah, I love it, man. And you mentioned the evaluation process, and this is something I'm always fascinated in, like trying to figure out what are other people doing, uh, comparing that to what I'm doing or what to what Bill's doing and try and figure out, okay, is there anything we're missing here? So would you mind sharing a little bit about that? Because obviously you are on the medical side, like what kind of stuff are you looking at above, below, at the knee joint itself? To figure out how well it's working
0: yeah okay let's uh okay you get me. let's let's jump into the uh, clinical side briefly and okay i would say it's like i need I, like for me right i need to rule in, rule out any like say let's just call it medical red flags so what that may look like is i'm looking at joint integrity i'm looking at ligament integrity i'm looking at meniscus health and then within that you can also get some insights into range of motion right so if someone Let's use a common one we see in basketball, right? A lot of guys have some increased hyperextension of a knee. Mm-hmm. So already, where my mind goes is like, okay, are they extending through a knee or are they extending through a hip when they jump, right? That's like yeah. one red flag that comes up, right? And then if I look at the tibial uh, tibial rotation, right, if they're biased towards tibial external rotation or tibial internal rotation, it's going to give you a pretty good indicator of what's going on at the foot and also femoral internal. Uh, rotation or external rotation, it gives a pretty good indicator what's going on at the hip. So at a clinical level at the knee, those are things like as I'm finding those puzzles to the pieces, sorry, pieces to the puzzle, excuse Mm -hmm. me there. I'm already starting to create a bias and like kind of a prediction of what's going to go on below and what's going to go above. So then when I, when I kind of expand that out, really from a global perspective, I'm looking at like just general movement patterns. I want to see a squat. I want to see a lunge. I want to see a single leg squat. And let the Key thing that I'm looking for is, are they willing to accept load into that knee and bilateral single leg vertical and then a horizontal plane? Mm-hmm. And oftentimes, if you find that like, there's a discrepancy, the first question that comes to mind is like, consciously, do they not want to load it due to pain? Or subconsciously, do they not want to load it to some sort of, uh, if they have a tendonopathy? there's probably some sort of cortical inhibition going on as well. So... When you look at those movement patterns, like are they equal or are they not equal? And then is it a clinical problem or is it really just a movement competency problem? So scratching the surface there, I'll hit pause and ask you, like, is is there anything there that kind of comes to mind that you want to dive deeper on?
1: Man, honestly, the first thing that, that I wrote down when you started talking about that, and I think it's incredibly relevant to like strength coaches, physical prep coaches, is this idea of where are they getting the extension from? And I think that's really important because a lot of times we see like this big kind of anterior orientation of the pelvis. We're used to seeing that, right? We know there's performance benefits to that. But what a lot of people don't see go along with that is now, okay, they can't get that extension from the hip. They're going to try and use another strategy. Now they're going to hyperextend the knee potentially. And we wonder why they have some of these issues at the knee joint itself. I just, I'm really glad you mentioned that because that's something I feel like I see all the time.
0: Yeah, it's a great point, right? Like at the end of the day, you're trying to figure out like a movement strategy. Let's hear, like, here's an analogy for you. I think everyone probably listening to this podcast is familiar with force plates or been exposed to force plates, Mm -hmm. right? Like, you have jump height. If two people have the same jump height, but then you dive into the, the data and it's like, oh, this person is more like, has a higher, more RSI. This one has less RSI, but higher concentric peak force. Like they're using just different strategies. Maybe one's more reactive. One's more like concentric for a lack of better terms. Yeah. Same thing happens. Like I take that same principle. Of like, yes, the output's the same, but like what are the parts in the integration of the parts that are producing that output? And you can do that orthopedically from joint by joint approach, but also from a movement competency approach as well.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, I I agree. And we're going to talk more about strategy later on because this is something that I really see missed at lower levels of sport, right? When we get like these high school and these collegiate athletes coming back, they maybe don't have some of the same tools that you guys do diagnostically. I think that's something that a lot of people are missing out on. So we'll come back to that. Um, But I love I love that idea of looking at strategy and and in this case, looking at where are they getting movement from? How are they producing force? I think that's critically important.
0: Now, go ahead. If if I may, another thought just popped into my head is I think – like as like we just talked about force plates, right? Like if you talk about like readiness, right? Mm-hmm. Um, like some people use utilize force plates as like a metric of readiness or some people utilize grip strength as a metric of readiness or like in soccer, it's common to do like the Nord board or like an adduction squeeze. I think if you take that same approach of like readiness and willingness to load tissue, the same thing can be applied with like some of your basic assessments that I alluded to earlier as far as some of those movements are a proxy to understand if you're willing to accept load or utilize that joint. So, and that can be applied to both the open chain and the closed chain, right? Like, so from like an open chain perspective, you don't have access to isokinetic machine or you can just use like a handheld dynamometer, a simple open chain knee knee extension may give you insight. It's like, oh, do they just not want to load this for... Some particular reason, right? Because we know from the patellotendinopathy literature, there's an inhibition up the chain, right? Mm-hmm. Quadriceps are typically inhibited, so strength output's probably can be down. So, okay, is like, is your assessment a proxy for something else? Is or is the fact that they don't they want to utilize a hip dominant strategy versus a knee dominant strategy during a single leg squat indicative of is it a movement competency or are they is there something else going on so i just like not only is that for movement competency but it's also like giving you into like you need to refer out for something which is very yeah. important like don't just think like oh like they're using a hip dominant versus knee dominant like i have to work on hip dominant but like sometimes the unwillingness to load that knee is because there's some sort of medical complication on the back end that they may not be aware of or they are aware of and they're just not telling you. Because I, I see that a lot of times. Like this yeah. comes to like uh, like pre-draft workers that we do. Like these guys, these guys come to a pre-draft workout, they don't want to tell you their knee hurts. Exactly. But you like you see but you ask them to like, hey, lunge to your right, lunge to your left. Let me see a single leg squat on the right and a single leg squat on the left. And if you see like something that's off, you're like... Man, that like I knew, like you go poke and prod on their like patella tendon and their quad tendon. It's like, oh, like I don't need to ask you; I already know. So I just like I just wanted to I want to like point that out there, like the the integrating the professions' performance and the medical. It's okay to like to accept, like you know, I just got to rule out that there's nothing going on with this knee that like I'm seeing as like in my lens is a movement competency. But sometimes it's not movement competency; it's something else that the athlete may not be telling you.
1: Yeah, and this is something that I've talked about for years. And I know you would agree with, it's like kind of know your role and your limits in whatever position you hold. Right. So as a strength coach, you're not willing and able to deal with all of the things medically that you might see. So that's where you have to build that network of people that you can refer out to. Obviously you guys have it in house, right? Cause you're, you're an entire organization, but if you're a solo strength coach, physical preparation coach, man, find a great massage therapist, find a great PT, find somebody to link up with. So if somebody does exceed your capacity as far as your skill set or what you're able to do with an athlete, hey, at least you can refer them out, get them the treatment and the therapy that they need so they come back to you in better
0: shape. 100%. Couldn't agree more with you.
1: Cool. So one thing that I know we both dealt with with athletes over the years are post-surgical knees. And this is a kind of a long-winded question, so let me flesh it out for you. But <laughs> it's a loaded question, right? Because the procedure that they go through, the athletes themselves, uh, previous history, all these things play an impact or play a role. But my question is, after surgery, do you have specific markers or KPIs you're looking at? And I'll, I'll give you my example first, and then I want to hear yours. because. You know, the post-surgical needs that I've seen, I've kind of got like this hierarchy or kind of this progression where it's like, okay, we got to reduce swelling, right? We got to restore mobility and motion throughout the system, make sure we've got our basic ranges of motion back, rebuilding strength and hypertrophy. Then we can do all the fun, like time and constraint-based stuff, like speed, power development. Does that make sense? One. And then number two, what does your model look like or what kind of sequence of events do you go through? to get somebody back to hundred percent.
0: How much time do we have on this?
1: Uh, as much as you <laughs> want, man, as much as you want. Uh,
0: all right, I'll try let's, let's keep the medical portion short. Um, okay. f- first and foremost, do no harm. Like, the, like they just did surgery that this, like this athlete just committed to doing surgery. You have to let the tissues that the surgeon just either uh, scoped out, repaired, whatever he did, you have to allow that tissue to heal. And that's why like, you'll often see, right? Like, in the NBA, you see people release timelines like, Oh, athlete, you know, just had knee, knee surgery. They're going to be out four to eight weeks. The reason those timelines like originated from are because that's how long tissue takes to heal based on the tissue type and the severity of the the injury. Right. So from a medical side, just do no harm and return that joint or that tissue to homeostasis, right? Like my primary goal is return homeostasis because if you don't, You are fighting an uphill battle the rest of the way. You try doing strength work too soon, you're gonna take two steps back. You try pushing range of motion too soon, you're gonna take three steps back, right? It's like your goal is to do as little as possible for the most effective dose. Mm -hmm. And so when I mean, when we return homeostasis, often like you asked the question, KPIs. Range of motion and pain are your two biggest indicators, right? Like if range of motion is going down, you know pain is going to go down because they they, they work in tandem relative to pain. And swelling influences pain. Also, swelling influences range of motion. So, like my primary goal in those first, let's just say, four to six weeks is kind of standard for a post-op, let's say a post-op me. Those first four to six weeks, I am cranking on massage. We are using game ready. We are using Normatec. We are using mark pro which is an nmes unit like we're doing yep. everything we can to get swelling out because if swelling lingers muscle inhibition exists the decreased range of motion exists and increase in pain with this so from a acute phase is that that's show perfect. some insight there? okay that's perfect yeah so then once you once you kind of clear that acute medical model like i look at it like i have like several principles that like i view exercise selection, right? So like, I'm going to go isometric before concentric before eccentric before high velocity for, you know, high velocity, you know, high, sorry, high load for high velocity, right? Like those are kind of like, I'm building that up. So what that might, so what that looks like for, let's just like use an exact example. Like I started an ACL case, like we were doing isometric um, knee extension, couple weeks post-op and then once we got past weight-bearing restrictions we just we were literally just doing isometric holds within the afforded range of motion that was in accordance to the surgeon's recommendations so you can do isometrics early right because isometrics also help with pain and then once we got past some range of motion restrictions excuse me range of motion restrictions okay now i just want to see you can you control that that range through multiple ranges and what that often looks like is Um, What comes to mind is one of your former guests, Joel Jameson, like his work with like tempo training, like just, just like crush tempo training because ultimately tempo training is BFR training, like (laughs) at a fundamental, at a fundamental level, right? You don't need a BFR unit to do BFR. Like you can make a quad burn by just crushing like sixty second split squats and and uh, squats, right? Just with like a weight vest. So then like once they're able to tolerate some of that, then I'm moving. Okay can you control like heavier load? Like I want to see you control high loads. And I do think there's merit. And I think this is an argument, like, a topic for debate, like how much percentage body weight should you be able to squat? Yeah. Right, like, It's always like a yeah. topic of debate, like how much you should you? My number is anywhere between 1.5 to 2.0. And, and I want to see it on a VBT scale, velocity-based training of roughly 0. 0.4 to 0. 0.5. And the reason I say this is not because I think every athlete has to squat heavy if you dive into the literature that has done regression models uh, from like injury prediction, like, right. The numbers that I continually see are anywhere from like 1.4 to 2.7 individuals that can either squat or trap bar deadlift that amount of body weight. The likelihood of injury at the end of a season is significantly less. And the sport is the sport matters and position matters. So like a key KPI that I want to see is like, I want to see at least 1.5 times body weight either on a trap bar or in a squat, and we can argue the debate the difference of like yeah, sure. one versus the other. Like, but at the end of the day, like you're still producing force, right? And you're, yeah. you're you're producing force in a level that is telling me, okay, you're willing to accept that amount of load through that knee. Mm-hmm. And and so then from there, once I feel comfortable, they've hit a let's just call it a max strength or an absolute strength phase. Then I'm just working along the VPT continuum. Which is like, okay, let's go speed strength, strength speed. Let's go metric I'm just working along that continuum to, and I don't have an exact science of saying hey you have to do this amount of weight at this percentage I just want to see you make progress with force out force output continuing to go up as you start to increase speed, because the slower you are, the more conscious and the more purposeful your effort is, you're more mindful of joint positions and what you're doing as speed increases. I don't want you thinking about that stuff. I just want you to do it. Right. So that's where, like I say, like I wish there was something out there that said, Hey, you should be able to do half your body weight at 0.75 meters per second. Yes. Like I use some of those numbers. And I think like where my numbers come from are just the basic, um, Like one RM within each within each speed zone. I think like there's some there's some of those like those charts that are out there. Like I refer to those. I think those are good starting points. Not saying like there's a perfect way to do it, but that's kind of how I work through the strength and the speed strength. And then once they kind of get to a place of high high velocity, then I'm crushing like eccentric RFD um yep. like off a of force plate and one of my favorite things to do early on with that is like a reverse banded uh like trap or like a banded trap bar deadlift right like where mm. you have the bands on the ground so like you have the person standing at top and then the bands are like already at max tension and then they pull you down yeah and w- and so and like what you're just working on is like you're you, my the reason i like that early on is because you're you're improving eccentric rfd without the impact of plyometrics because with a knee right? The more impact you put through a knee, you're without fail, you're going to see an increase in swelling. And that's okay. Like if you're a performance coach and you start to like increase load and you see swelling occur, don't freak out. Like it is a normal part of the process because imagine, let's extrapolate that concept out to a bigger, more easily understood concept. When you, when you take two weeks off to go to vacation and you don't do a workout and then you come back and you go to the gym
1: yeah
0: that first workout the next two days you're crushed you're Destroyed. sore. yeah you're sh- that doesn't mean you stop that doesn't mean you don't keep going forward it's just like your body hasn't done this in a while so i'm gonna let you know like hey like this was kind of a stressor for the last, since the last two weeks, the same thing happens in rehab. Like there's a difference between pain and soreness. You're going to see soreness and you're going to see changes in swelling. Don't forget when you lift heavy, you have intracellular swelling, extrapolate that principle, right? It's a, a cell is a cell, just a joint is a conglomerate accumulation of cells. Yep. The increase in swelling is just saying, Hey, like this specific tissue, that was just more than it could handle right now. So you just back off, but that doesn't mean you stop and freak out. Now, just full disclosure, if that swelling doesn't go away and it keeps growing, yes, please refer out. But I say that in the sense of where that came from was like the impact and eccentric RFD and reverse band itself. Like I love to just encourage anything that requires overload on the on the eccentric component especially that is a knee dominant, like allow your knees to go over your toes. Like we can, we can talk about like, should they, or should they not? I'm happy to go there, but like, that is so important because you talk to any, any high performance physical therapist or strength coach that is working with an athlete coming off a knee injury nine times out of 10, they're going to tell you like the output that comes back last is like rate of force development on the eccentric component or the decelerative uh, component of a movement. So the sooner you can do that without inducing impact and without changing the clinical examination, I promise you the better off you will be.
1: Yeah, I love it. Okay, man, I've got like three follow-ups to this. Okay, (laughs) Okay. because I mean, that was straight fire. Okay, number one, one thing that I think is really interesting, and it's made a comeback, I feel like, when I was getting started, I remember in the 2000s watching the PTs just crush guys with isolation work like post ACL, post knee issues. And then I think that went away for a while and people were just about integration, integration, get them to squat and all that. And now I see the isolation work coming back into the game. So can you talk to me a little bit about that and 100%. The, the role that that has in a rehab process?
0: Yeah, so let's 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 just use a common example. You have a bodybuilder, right? Mm-hmm. You have a bodybuilder that wants biceps, big biceps. Are you going to do bicep curls or are you going to do pull-ups? Which one are you going to do if you want big, big biceps?
1: <laughs> well, pull-ups take your biceps out, right? So,
0: <laughs> Right, but a bicep is incorporated in, like it's involved in a pull-up, right? For there sure. is some incorporation, right? For sure. But if you want big biceps, you're going to do single joint isolated activity, Absolutely. right? to To grow that muscle take that principle to a quadricep post ACL, right? Let's, let's talk about why the open chain exercise got a bad rap for a while. They did a lot of literature and I have it all pulled up right here. The author's name is Escamilla and he did a big research paper and just looked at, okay, let's look at all the exercises that, you know, a lower extremity could do. And the fear of with um, open chain exercise is once you got past forty degrees of knee extension, forty so slightly bent to straightened up, yep. that was the that was the peak strain on an ACL. Okay. All right. Meaning, so the problem with that is what that does is that that has the potential to create laxity on the ACL that's just been repaired. So doing open chain from forty to zero, even maybe sixty to zero, you could actually make the joint less like not as stable as it should be following a repair okay so open open chain in general got in my opinion got a bad rap because there was this fear of like oh i don't want to i don't want to mess up the surgeons uh Work. repair like yeah. i'm just i'm not going to do open chain the problem with that is then you the next phase of literature that followed was you're seeing these acl individuals athletes that had acl repairs. 12 16 18 24 months out they're still having quadricep deficits yes right yeah you can't like i'm sorry but you can't strengthen a quad as best you can without doing straight up open chain isom open chain exercise just like if you want to if you want to create big biceps you got to do bicep curls that's like you got to go to you got to go to arm farm yeah Uh, so to your original question the oak the the open chain versus closed chain you need them both okay it's just a matter of knowing what ranges to work with specifically either two things the type of surgery that they may have had like if they had acl like hey like you got to be mindful of range of motion but the cool thing is if you work 90 to 60 meaning from bottom of a leg extension to like somewhat halfway there's zero strain on the acl so like Crank out ISOs at 90, crank out ISOs at 60, crank out 90 to 60. There's no strain on the ACL. It's safe, right? It is okay to do that. And I promise you, you're going to have decreased atrophy and increased activation with quadriceps activity. Then on the other side of the spectrum, working in closed chain, right? Peak ACL um, strain and peak compressive forces, right? Compressive forces, meaning the patella and the, the patellofemoral joint, the most compression there is is at deeper ranges. But if you're at the top end of the range, like you're okay, like you're going to be safe. So you can hit both ends of range of motion at the knee in different positions. So to your, I think your original question was like, how did we go from 20 years ago, hammering home, like open chain to like the last 10 you know, 10, 15 years, not really doing it The last five years, like everybody, let, let's start doing it. Right. I think it was just, I think it was just this cycle of we needed the literature to catch up and us to understand the differences between the two. So to summarize it, you need both to strengthen a quad. And if you don't strengthen a quad, your knee patients are going to struggle, period. Yeah,
1: I love it. Okay. Number two, talk to me about knees over toes.
0: Oh, okay. <laughs> 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 okay. So, okay. I want full disclosure. I have athletes that don't want to do knees over toes, and I have athletes that want to do knees over toes. And I think the knees, I think you have to just appreciate physics here. And I think what the fear of knees over toes comes from, if I like you dive into the patella femoral joint literature, like PTFJ pain, like runner's knee, like that anterior knee pain that no one yeah. likes on into your patella. What they found was like the deeper your knee flexion is, like the more compressive force there is. So there's this assumption that like, if you did that, then you're causing that pain. It's so like, let's not let the knees go over toe because if knees go over toe, you have increased knee flexion. The problem I have with that is you're not accounting for a uh, body position above that and where your center of mass is, right? Mm-hmm. So if you like, let me ask you this, right? Or well, let's just like kind of use this example. If you have someone with anterior knee pain, I imagine you in your career, you've either switch them to a goblet squat, switch them to a zercher squat, switch them to a box squat or switch them to like a heels elevated or it's, like all like, of the above. <laughs> right, right. So any one of those. So why do those work at alleviating knee pain? From a physics perspective, most people when they squat, if they're other if they're uneducated, if they're a beginner, if they're an intermediate squatter, typically they shift their weight forward towards their toes, okay? Yep. okay. So, what that does to the center of mass is it now drives your center of like the most force of the knee. And this, this this has been studied in biomechanics with PTFJ. It shifts the weight to the anterior knee. So, now your most force, your most load is going through the anterior knee. If you don't have anterior knee pain when you're doing that, I'd be shocked. Yeah. But the, mom- the moment you shift them back, the moment you either verbally cue it, tactile cue it, or constraint-based by one of those exercises – you are going to reduce the knee pain. I pro- like it's without like I said not without fail, but like nine times out of ten, it's going to work, right? Heels elevated creates a orthotic that shifts, that purposely shifts your weight forward, so your vestibular system is going to automatically correct you to shift your weight back. That's yeah. why heels elevated work. A box squat is just teaching someone, hey, when you squat, don't let your weight go forward. Like sit your weight back towards this box. A zurcher squat or a goblet squat, same thing as heels elevated. It's going to pull you forward. But your vestibular system is going to say no i don't want to fall forward i want to be upright so i'm going right. to shift my weight back right. so i digress the original question of knees over toes like your knee and ankle were designed to have your knees go over toe watch watch an athlete run jump like it happens right. the problem is in the weight room it got a bad rap because we weren't mindful of foot position and, and where the body of mass was going if someone's doing a lunge and their heels come in the front foot their heels coming up off the ground I don't think it's the best thing because I think you're going to create a negative, undesirable adaptation. That's going to probably be anterior knee pain. And that's where a lot of basketball players have the fear of letting their knees go over their toes because when I do that, my knee hurts. But if you teach an athlete to do a lunge or a split squat and they can have like strong heel contact and feel proximal hamstring when they're doing that, like the knee pain is out the door and they're like, it's like, like, it's like a mind bolt. It's a miracle. You just like work. And I was like, Nah, man, I just taught you physics. Like that's that's all it is.
1: Right. So literally I just wrote down distributed versus focal loading, right? How many of these guys do you see, right? They lose that heel contact. Everything gets pushed forward, right? So now I don't have a posterior chain to help distribute this force. Everything is going through the front of my foot, through the front of my knee joint. Well, hell yeah, it's going to hurt. You know, it's like, so the second you teach them to shift back a little bit, find a heel, Now we go knee over toe, and like you said, we can keep everything on the backside engaged. I'm sure Bill would hate that term, but, you know, like we just start to distribute those forces across multiple muscle groups. It's like, oh my gosh, my knees feel great.
0: Yeah, and and like, I I just want, like, I want it to be, known. like, I work with athletes that like knees over toes, and I have uh, two athletes that don't want to do it. And they will, I will, I have athletes that will squat with an, you know, anterior translation of a tibia. And I have athletes that will squat the vertical tibia at the end of the day for me, they're just choosing a strategy that's allowing them. And as long as they're keeping their weight back, like a vertical tip, a shin angle, it forces you to keep your weight back. Right. Yeah, like you, ha- sure. like you have to, or else you're going to fall forward. Right. It's yeah. so like, I'm cool with that. And, and it works. Like I have an, a great athlete, and a great player that does that. And I'm like, perfect like and his like knee health like a clinical exam is just as good as a guy that doesn't i think like it's this is like a, a product of social media i'm like oh if you're like you don't follow me and you follow him like yeah this is good this is bad it's like no 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 like they're trying to sell you something and create a following because ultimately they want they want you to buy their product. Like, let's just call it what it is. Like, everything's a business. But like, if you strip that away and just understand the fundamental principles of basic biomechanics, physics, and sensory mode. And what I mean by sensory mode is like, when you're lunging, do you actually feel a quad or like, do you like, or do you feel, do you feel the front of your knee or like, Hey, when you're squatting, do you, all you feel is glute and no quad? Like those questions have to be asked when you're doing exercise because you can set the right, right constraints. You can choose the right exercise and write the right cue. But if you're not getting the feedback from them that they're feeling the right things, like feel is huge. And it's underrated in my opinion, in the weight room for stuff, like there's like 10 guys in there. You can't ask those questions. Like I understand I'm going to at a, uh, Privilege to be able to work one on one all the time. If you're asking those questions and you understand the integration, I think, man, like you are going to elevate your knowledge and game with your clients and your athletes to a whole new level that they're going to appreciate you so much more.
1: Yeah, I love it, man. All right, I've got one more, but I'm going to save it till after this question because I think okay. this question will lead into the next one. So the next thing I want to talk about is this idea of strategies to rehabbing okay. what we would both describe as the athletic knee. And I'll give you an example. I had a girl uh, that I've worked with for many, many years, tore ACL last July. She came in in November, December of this year, right? One of her breaks, it's all muddy at this point. And she's like, hey, I got clearance to train. I said, okay, great. How did they evaluate you? And it was like, oh, they watched me do like a box landing and like a three jump test. I said, okay, let me watch you do that box landing. Right? And you know where this story is going, right? Unaffected knee comes down, distributed load, like bends the ankle, bends the knee, absorbs force well, goes to the impacted knee, right? And immediately there's no knee or ankle bend. The hips go straight back. Like it's very clear she's not loading the targeted tissue. But according to, you know, this person above her, whoever evaled her, they said she's ready to go. Okay? So with that being said, I'm really interested in how much you guys look into strategy with regards to return to play. And maybe along those same lines, what are some of the more sensitive measures you found to be beneficial when you're qualifying or maybe disqualifying somebody from like a return to play process?
0: This is a great question because I think we're, at least I will say, I will speak upon my like my primary profession, physical therapist. we Starting to understand that some of the testing battery that we've been using for decades, with respectively to, I know we keep talking about ACLs because it's the most you know prolifically researched injury. Yeah. The testing battery that we're we're most, um, sorry, most typically use. Yeah. Uh, we're finding that it's not as reliable as we thought, right? And I think a, a performance coaches may come easy to you to understand because you kind of see. If maybe had access to force plates earlier than most physical therapists have. Okay. And so the first thing that comes to mind when you ask that question, I know exactly, I would imagine the cluster that her, you know, her clinician may have used involved some variation of a triple hop, single hop and a crossover hop. So for the listeners that don't understand what those are, A, what you do know, imagine you're standing on one leg. And your single leg hop is you're just hopping for distance as far as you can on that one leg, but you got to stick the landing, right? And then the triple hop is the same exact thing, but you're going three in a row and you stick the landing. And then the third one is a crossover test where you like, you're, you have to take measure down the line. You've got to cross over right to left to right to back to left, right? Three hops and stick. So you're kind of challenging like pronation, supination there. The other two are challenging. Just what you could call is concentric strength. And then like RSI, right? Yeah. the repeated jump. Well, what? And so what we just would use as like, oh, if like they're equal, then, okay, you're clear to go. And it's like, and the depth jump, okay, box jump, like, okay, look, we just want to be able to see that you can accept force. What we found in recent literature is that one, the LSI, lens symmetry index, meaning comparing the affected side versus the unaffected side was a poor indicator of return to play. Reason was in in a non-professional sports setting, in my opinion, because we see these athletes every day, we have the resources to do, to address these things. I think what happens is the, un- the unaffected side gets detrained. So now, like, mm. you have a, your, your affected side is going up, but your unaffected side is going down. So when they, when they look the same yeah. as output, they're actually not. And, like, the research is showing that as a poor indicator. So that's one why I think um, that testing battery is starting to – I would say, let's say it's failing. It's not failing, but it's not as reliable. The other component too, that uh, a recent research paper that I read was looking at just like uh, kinematics on a single leg hop and on force plates. And what they found was, I don't remember the timeline exactly, but I imagine it was somewhere like, hey, we looked at like six, nine, 12 and 18 months. And there were still deficits of like a hip dominant strategy versus a knee-dominant strategy. And what I mean by hip versus knee is a hip-dominant strategy is your inability to load a knee. And what that typically looks like is the knee remains stiff, but your trunk pitches forward. Yes. Versus a knee-dominant strategy, you're allowing the knee and hip to bend kind of equally or in tandem. And the the center of mass, and I use like the the ear, the ear over midfoot. Yep. If I see the ear over midfoot kind of stay in a straight line, then that's telling okay, like your center of mass is relatively where it should be. And so what the problem with the triple hop test, right? The triple hop or the single hop test, they're assessing horizontal vectors, Mm -hmm. right? And and we know that horizontal vectors is a hip dominant strategy. Yep. Right. That's why if you want to increase your sprint speed going forward, you're probably going to do resisted running, probably going to do broad jumps. You're probably going to do sled pushing. You're not going to not. Okay. Let me digress. You're not saying you're not going to squat. There's squat and va- sure. valuable at sprinting. But if I had to pick one to improve acceler- accelerate, accelerative strength, I'm probably going to choose a sled push versus a squat. Mm-hmm. All right. And so what we're learning is if we're all, if we're not assessing the vertical vectors as good as we, we can now some of the tech that's out there, primarily force plates and, and, and a good understanding of what the ability to load a knee with center of mass over it. Then I think that's where this miss, let's just call it a miscommunication from research to practice exists. Yeah. And I think that's what you saw with your athlete. So I think the follow-up on that thought is like, what I want to see is like, like we talked earlier, like I'm crushing squats, single leg, and double leg squats, yielding ISO, overcoming ISO and like tempo and speed strike. Like, I'm crushing that because I just want them to learn the pattern of like, this is what it means to like load a knee in a vertical vector, because that's yeah. ultimately what a knee is. To, like it's going to be the hardest thing for a knee to do. You can run on a straight line with an inadequate knee because you're going to compensate an ankle and a hip and a low back, Like, you can do that. And that's where I think in a limited resource setting, your return to play criteria, you're going to look at those things and you are like, oh, like he's running in a straight line without pain. Like there's no hobble there. And like, oh, you can kind of jump. I don't have the tech to like assess everything. Like no fault to that, like that setting or that practitioner. Like we're only as good as what we're given and what we know. Right. But I think as an industry, we're learning to grow and understand like, hey, I need to see you load a knee
1: and how do you
0: load a knee? Your knees got to go over your toes and you got to have your center of mass with it.
1: Yeah. I love it, man. Okay, so here's this follow-up question because you've obviously worked at the highest level of sport, whether we're talking NBA, MOS. We get a lot of kids in our gym over the years that are post-ACL and varying timelines, right? We'll get some that are like six months and need that kind of transition back to sport. We'll have others that we get at 10, 11, 12 months that still aren't even ready for that for whatever reason, right? They've had complications. Uh, The rehab process hasn't gone according to plan. What advice would you give to a parent or to a coach who's trying to bring a younger athlete back as far as like, you know, being patient, timelines, whatever like experience you've had at your level, just to tell them, hey, look, this is what I see here it works for us. It would work for you as well.
0: I'll use three examples that I can think back to in the last two years. I had one case um, that came back too soon. Okay. Um, that, that happens all the time to, uh, for unforeseen circumstances. I had another athlete that we told a timeline. We hit the timeline, f- frustrated, like we're not where we need to be. I'm frustrated. We're not where we need to be. But we both just accepted, like, hey, you know what? Sometimes things just take time. and then had another athlete we gave no timeline and we're just like hey when you're ready you're ready um and we're just going to use a criteria based um respect some timelines like biological timelines but for the most part really criteria based and just take our time all three have eventually made it back the truth is though the person that came back too soon actually had to take five steps back um the person that you know ultimately just chalked it up and said, hey, like, you know what? If it is what it is. Let's just keep pushing forward. And the guy that's going slow um, is on his way back too. So my advice at the lower level is like you, there's just some things you can't rush, right? You know, there's just like, you can't rush time. And like earlier in the, in the episode, we talked about, you know, sometimes you see statements from teams and professional sports, like athletes out four to eight weeks. A lot of those timelines come from just biological healing. And no matter how much Infrared lights you do, massage you do, you go and take all the supplements, you do, like, honestly, you do everything that we know is good for you. You still sometimes just can't change the timeline. Yeah. And I, I think you just have to have an appreciation and patience for that. And the analogy, like, I like to use is I think we all can probably relate to this at some level is like your, like your, your investments, your, your investments in the stock market, the 401k. Like, like, right now, there's a bear market in the stock market most people aren't going to sell when it's low. Like you don't, like you don't put money in an investment account and think like, Oh, like something's not going right. Like I got to change it. I got to do something like, no, you're like, I'm just going to ride it out. Like I know it's going to, it's going to progress up. Like that's that's what time does. Why is like, why do we think something else has to be like, why can't we take that same idea and apply it to the human body? Like it's, you just need time sometimes. And I can't, force time i can't manipulate it i wish i could like i wish i was like some avenger that could do that you know it'd be fantastic um but like the thought i guess to summarize the overarching thought that like, like i take in mind sometimes is a lot of what we do is often a distraction to allow the natural healing process to occur and just like let that sit and think oh okay i get it
1: right takes time man you can't force it
0: but on the flip side and this is i get players like like, adam i hear you that's great but like i still want to know timelines are great for goal setting like oh uh Under promise, over deliver, right? If if like you think in your mind, like you can get a guy back on the court in two weeks, hey, hey, we'll get you there in four weeks. And when he's back in two, two and a half weeks, you look like a rock star, and he's super happy because everyone everyone hates missed expectations. Like it is a moral deflator. So ultimately create reasonable expectations based on the information you have at hand. And when in doubt, overshoot and set yourself up for success because everyone loves a guy that gets a guy back earlier than he initially said.
1: Yes, I love it. Okay, so one more kind of big picture question and then we'll do our our lightning round here, but Yeah. Talk to me about tendinopathy. Okay. And I know this is like a hot button topic. Lots of people talking about it, you know, and we can talk about eccentric protocols or isometric protocols and collagen and all the stuff that Dr. Keith Barr has talked about. But man, I expect a lot out of you. So what, what, what's new out there? What's something like you're excited about or anything that you've seen? You're like, Oh, I think this might be a thing.
0: Oh, okay. um, on the medical front, um, Jill Cook is someone I rely to. She's always putting out information. She just gave, um, she, there was a presentation she had on YouTube. Um, uh, um, recently, I think if you just Google Jill Cook tendinopathy video, probably like one of the first two. And she presented a lot of recent literature, and the one that came to mind for me when I you know, you asked this is, like, when you have a tendinopathy, you have a thickened tendon, and we often associate a thickened tendon with uh, pathology, but what some recent literature has shown is, like, a thickened tendon, aka a pathological tendon, versus an unthickened tendon that's healthy, they both have the same amount, if not the pathological has more, of healthy collagen within the tendon. So, what that tells us is, like, don't be afraid to load a thickened tendon.
1: Yeah. Right? And I think,
0: yeah, right, and I think that's, for, for most, that's, like a, that's, that's a fear, right? Like, let's stick in. Like, it doesn't look the same. It doesn't feel the same. Like, this, I don't want to touch this. Like, I'm, but in actuality, like, the tendon responds to load. Like, that's what it does. Yeah. So, to answer your question, like, practically, I don't have anything that, like, um. Like, that's game-changing. I think the literature keeps suggesting, like, you've got to have this progressive exercise model of, like, of isometrics, eccentrics, heavy load resistance, to then transitioning to low-intensity, high-volume plyometrics, to high-intensity, low-volume plyometrics. And, like, just working along that continuum that we talked about earlier in the podcast as far as just, um, like, my exercise progression, that applies to tendinopathy, too, because ultimately, they respond to tendons. I mean, sorry, me, they, re- they respond to load.
1: Yeah, yeah. I love it, man. Like, I'm so fascinated by this stuff because I know you and I, we kind of talked about this before the show, but I think we've had a lot of similar experiences. Uh, Obviously, you have higher level dudes generally coming in than I do, but it's still exciting, right? It's like to be able to have these kinds of discussions where it's like, hey, man, you're seeing a lot of the same things. I feel like we're doing a lot of the same interventions. So that's very, very cool. Now, before I let you go, you know, you got to do the lightning round, right?
0: Right. I have one, I have one question for you. I felt I, like I went on. I, I had, a, I had a few tangents through there. I went yeah. on a few rambles. I felt like there were some questions you asked for specific KPIs relative to knee health and return to play. Yeah. Do you, do you feel like we talked enough for your listeners on what some of those KPIs are, or do we need to just revisit some of those? I want to make sure I didn't get lost in my own thoughts I, with, I with don't, what you guys.
1: I don't think you did. I don't think you okay. did. Because we talked about like, like there is that sequence of events, right? And I believe you know, you started with, okay, we got to reduce swelling and get motion back, isometric, you know, working into the higher force, lower rate stuff, and then progressing into the faster rate, you know, maybe less load base, but more like plyometric explosive type activities. I think you explained that very, very well. So,
0: okay. Wanted to make sure I didn't, again, know how I can get
1: No, 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 no. That was great, man. That was great. So, I'll try lightning. and be easy. I'll try and be easy on you with the lightning round, though. Okay.
0: It's, it's, hey, man, you can take it wherever you want. Lights, All right. Lights,
1: okay. So I feel like we've talked about this before, but I'm still interested in this. Like you said, I think you just said you finished your fifth year in the NBA. Is that right?
0: Correct. Okay. Yeah, five, five in basketball, eight in soccer.
1: Okay. So talk to me about your evolution between sports and how that, how you feel like you've changed over that 13 year period. I know that's loaded. I know it's loaded. Let me let me widow it down. Talk okay. to me about how you feel like you've evolved as a practitioner, right? Like think about year one in college or excuse me, year one in the MLS, wherever you were when you were first coming out in soccer. Think mm-hmm. about how you would train somebody, how you were diagnosed or assess somebody to where you're at now. Talk to me about that evolution.
0: Oh, okay. I would say early on, like I think when I came out of school, the functional movement was a big thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, like like undergraduate, like hey, like to like earlier we talked about open chain, closed chain, like everything was like no, nah, like train, like train movements, train movements. Don't worry about like open chain stuff. So like I was big on that, like with my athletes and my yeah. own personal training. And then I got really nerdy um, and like objective with numbers. Having worked in sports science, that like I thought everything had to be a mathematical problem and equation. Like you know, like you have to have like this fifteen percent increase. Per week, or else you're going to blow a hammy according to the acute chronic ratio.
1: Right.
0: Right. So then, like, then I, then I, you know, coming out of, you know, PT school and being influenced by Bill, like the asymmetrical patterns that exist. So taking an appreciation of, like, okay, maybe the right side isn't trained like the left side. And then, like, okay, let's be more aware of sensory motor capabilities during the training process. And then, Over the last three years in the position that I'm in, director of rehab, like what that role involves is integrating multiple disciplines, doctors, dietitians, psychologists, athletic trainer, sport coach, head coach, general manager. I've just had an appreciation for everybody's opinion and learning to agree to disagree and choosing the best intervention for that athlete based on what also they want to. Yeah. I think we, I think we get caught up too often. Like, no, nah, like this is what I believe in. Like, this is what the research says. This is what we're going to do. Absolutely. But if I was in, if I was an athlete, I would want two to three opinions. 100%. Just like, like if It was your kid. You yeah, want to go absolutely. see a couple different people and like, you want to air it out. And then like on your own personal bias and preferences, you're going to choose the one that you want. So I think, Where I'm at now is like, I'm much more open and receptive to ideas that aren't necessarily in line with my thinking. Um, This position has forced me to do that with players and staff. And ultimately where I have ended up is like, I want to present options to the athlete. I want to educate them. And then I want them to make a decision because- Yeah, I like that. Because if they don't have stake in the decision, when crap hits the fan they're going to come back and say well you told me i should do this and i wanted to do that but like you said i should do this so now like look where i'm at it's your fault it's like no like no that's never that's not how it should go and also if you dive a little bit into like cognitive science like if someone takes ownership over their own decision they're willing to put more effort and intent into it because they believe it because they chose it um so i hope that provides a little bit of
1: no that's perfect that's perfect and i think one takeaway from that that I think will be valuable to our listeners is like too often when you're a young coach or when you're just getting started, people are all about, you need more tools, add this tool, do this, do that, right? And like a master craftsman or a master carpenter, right? They might have a really big toolbox, right? But at the same time, it's not just having a big toolbox. It's knowing the right tool to use for the right job. You know, and it sounds like that's one thing that you've learned. And I know that's something I've learned over the years, too. It's like there's very few tools that are just not helpful at all. Right. You know, whatever it may be in a gym, in a weight room, in, in the sport performance realm, like there's very few things that are wholly unuseful. It's about knowing the time and the application that's most important.
0: Absolutely. And to add another insight, like to that question, another perspective is I think you and I have talked about this previously as like, you know, for a while people like, Oh, I got to create my own model.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah.
0: And I want to revisit that idea and like to what you just talked about, like having multiple tools, like experiences and tools give you a broader filtering system to be able to have conversations with different practitioners, have an appreciation for other industries, but also be able to like pull from the say, okay, I've seen this work with this person and this athlete and this practitioner, maybe this is going to work. And like, let's just kind of see if this works for this athlete. If it doesn't, that's okay. Like do no harm. But like sometimes, sometimes you got to pivot. And I, I think it's still important as young as you are, when you have the time, learn as much as you can, get as much experience as you are, but also it's important to be willing to commit to something because I think often it's, there's a school of thought out there like, oh, like, I don't know, just do whatever, like, it'll work. Or like, ah, I don't know, like, let's just do this. Like one of my, like one thing that I've learned I had to do recently is like, I just got to commit to something mm-hmm. and I'm willing willing to bet I'm wrong or I'm willing to say like, Hey, you know what? That just isn't the right thing. It's not working. I think the problem with, I'll speak for myself. I struggled early on is committing to something and just kind of saying, ah, I don't know. Like, let's, let's, let's just kind of use a little bit of everything If you don't commit to something, you don't necessarily know if it's going to work, but also like you have to have something to go to and to believe in and to do. And it's okay to say, you know what, two weeks down the road, you know what, this isn't, this isn't getting what we want. Like, let's, let's just make a little pivot and get like, keep making forward progress. And that's totally okay. It is okay.
1: But you learn from that, right? And so that's something that I talked about a lot like whether it's you know if i'm talking at a seminar or i'm working with our interns when people just ask me like this open-ended question and expect me to give them the answer i just don't do it anymore and maybe it's just like bill just like just wearing me down over the years because i don't even go to bill now with just a question right i'm gonna give some thought to it and i'm gonna say here's what i'm seeing here's what i think what do you think And then now I've got some skin in the game, right? If I'm right, right, great. And my line of thinking is on point. And if I'm wrong, well, now at least I know why I'm wrong because I invested time into, right, the thought process. Right. And I think that's really valuable and something that more people need to do just as a whole. Like invest yourself in the thought process. Try it because everything's an experiment, right?
0: Yes, absolutely. I I think that... The, pro- the the challenge with just wanting the answer and not like they like just wanting the answer to the question is the people just like want people just want the solutions they don't want the thought process they don't want to do the work to think right right I think that's I think and I think that's a product of social media truthfully like Absolutely. it's like oh oh I want to yeah. learn how to I don't know back squat I'm sure there's an Instagram profile that's strictly dedicated to back squatting It's like oh yeah I'm just gonna choose that solution I'm not I'm not gonna ask good questions why well, I'm just gonna do it. Exactly um, uh But let me wrap this question up. I think the final thought that comes to the unwillingness to commit to something, or just the struggle with the process, is just the fear of failure and the fear of being wrong. Like, let's face it, we we all we all have egos, and we all don't want to be that person. That's man, I made a mistake. People are going to look at me differently. Man, I was I went to Bill with this solution, and he said, "Man, that's just that's just not the best one." Man, I'm a failure. It's like. Come on, man. Like we all know you grow by failure and mistakes. That's literally how you grow a muscle. You break it down to build it back up. Like we're we're all the same in that too. And I think as long as you surround yourself with the people that are willing to politely have those conversations rather than just be ignorant and arrogant to say, no, you're wrong. This is what you should be doing. It's like, no like that's and I think that's where people get put in a pigeonhole like I don't want to do this anymore because this guy just keeps telling me I'm wrong every time like whereas like in your case you can go to Bill and as long as you come with like a little bit of homework you guys are going to come to a solution together and I think it's around you got to surround yourself with those people
1: yeah for sure okay number two long two years for you prior to this what what off-season plans do you have for this summer what are you doing what are you getting into
0: uh so the past month i've really just taken time to visit family and friends on the east coast that i haven't seen in two years um i was in and out uh the month of june so it's just really nice to turn my phone off or only like just like check it once a day and just spend time with my nieces um some lifelong friends that i've had like it was just really good to see my people just see my people man
1: yeah i love it okay number three talk to me about phoenix summers bro how hot is it there
0: All right, so let's let's let's. Here's what people always say. Oh, it's a dry heat. It's not that. I'm sorry. Once it's over 105, it's hot. (laughs) It feels like it's like a blow dryer, right? So like living on the East Coast, like 85 is hot because it's humid. Yeah. Like 85 out here is fine because it's like it's not humid. It's nice. But I'm sorry, like the that sun's beating down on you at 105, 110. Like your skin is hot, and it feels like a blow dryer just off you. Like my dog doesn't want to run outside after like 11 a.m yeah he's like why am i doing
1: this (laughs) i can't even imagine dude there's a reason i always joke around i'm already like too far south being in indiana like i just can't go further south with my skin tone so (laughs) uh okay last but not least number four dude what's next for adam lawakino man like what are you excited about what are you working on thinking about anything
0: yeah i'm just uh Excited about continuing to build our, you know, our team here alongside some great people. I think we're, things, again, speaking to like things take time, I think building a team and building relationships takes time. And I think we're getting some good places here with our staff. So very excited to be a part of that. Uh, personally, excited to finally go on my honeymoon at the end of the summer. Gonna That's
1: exciting.
0: Yeah. Go on a, a nice safari in Africa, which will be fun. Wow um and then i guess professionally i've been just contemplating the idea of trying to build up some sort of mentorship and or just like putting resources out there that you know my position i'm very fortunate to have access to a lot of people and things yeah and i think yeah i got a lot of questions from young pts of how do you manage return to play how do you manage pro sports world so i think professionally that's somewhere down the pipeline
1: that would be exciting I would, can I join that?
0: Of I'm course not, I'm you not can. a young
1: PT, but can I join? Nah, absolutely.
0: Like you know, it's for all those out there that want to be a part of it.
1: Yeah, I love it, man. I love it. Well, Adam, as always, dude, thank you so much for your time. I know you're busy. You got a lot going on, so I appreciate it. Where can my listeners find out more about you and the great work that you're doing?
0: Sure. Uh, Instagram is probably where I'm at most. I don't do too much on it, but that's where I tend to, to live. Um, what's that? Adam, I think Adam.Layacono.
1: I'll find uh, it. I'll get so it I in said, the show notes.
0: It's just that good looking guy with great hair. That's all you want to
1: That's <laughs> right. He looks like a soccer guy, but he's in the NBA now. Uh. <laughs> I love it, man. I love it. Well, I'll get that in the show notes so people can find you. But again, Adam, thanks so much for your time, man. I appreciate it.
0: Uh, of course, Mike. It's so great to catch up, man.
1: All right, my friend. That does it for this week's show with Adam Luakano. Really hope you enjoyed it. Adam's such a smart guy. Like He and I just really have grown to be good friends over the years. And it it is interesting following our path because we both started kind of in the soccer world. I mean, I was kind of in basketball and then came to soccer and then back in basketball. And so it's just been fun to to watch his evolution over the years, watch how much he's grown, obviously in a great position now with Phoenix, an amazing organization, Uh, not just from a basketball perspective, but it just sounds like top to bottom, they run a really really sound program over there. So it was great to catch up with him. And most importantly, I hope you learned a thing or two about knees and how high level professionals are are looking at evaluating and treating their clients and athletes that suffer from knee pain. Because I don't know about you. I don't think you can train people for very long without running into at least one, if not a handful of people that are struggling with knee stuff. So I hope this episode helped you out. If it did, small favor to ask. If you're not already subscribed to the show, man, take two seconds out of your day. Do it right now. Wherever you consume podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, Google Play, the Amazon store, wherever you consume podcasts, go there right now. Takes one second, hit the subscribe button. So you know each and every week when a new episode drops. So my friend, as always, thank you so much for your support. Love and appreciate you. And we'll be back next week with our next episode. Take care.